I think when we think about reefs, we often think about movies like Finding Nemo, where we see this hyper-diversity of creatures swimming around, and we see all of the different corals. But did you know that reefs could also be made by oysters? That's the subject of today's New Species podcast, Reef Building Oysters. Let's get started. New Species, the podcast where we talk to scientists about their discoveries of organisms that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We talk to the authors of these studies to get behind-the-scenes stories, to talk about why these discoveries should matter to everyone, not just scientists, and to help people better understand the wonderful biodiversity of our planet. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast. Welcome to the New Species Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Patrick, and today I'm joined by Dr. Graham Oliver, an honorary research fellow at the National Museum of Wales in the UK. He's here today to talk to us about his recent paper in Zoochies, in which he and his co-authors describe a new species of reef-building oyster from the Arabian Gulf. Welcome, Graham. Thank you. It's nice to be on such an interesting program. Well, thank you. I, I hope it is interesting. And I think we're talking about something extremely interesting today. I haven't been able to talk to anybody about anything that has to do with the reef and they're such important ecosystems. So let's start right there. What is a reef-building oyster? Can we just describe so that people understand what we're talking about with that? Yep. I think it's important to realize that we're not talking about coral reefs here. What we're talking about is an animal that creates its own environment. So the community of oysters, in this case, is creating a new environment consisting totally of oyster shells. And in this case, this environment is in the intertidal, so that uh, you will have areas completely covered with oysters, so that when you walk on them, you're just walking on pure oysters. So this is a sort of ecosystem building type of organism. In the same way that corals build coral reefs, these oysters are building oyster reefs and in this case, in the intertidal. That's amazing. So there's, you know, when we always think of reefs, everybody always thinks of, like, say, the movie Finding Nemo or something where you have these incredibly complex reefs, and, and the basis of those, as you point out, are, are corals. To think that there's another organism out there doing this is absolutely mind-blowing. What Can you describe one of these to us? Like, how big are these oysters that we're talking about uh, in, in not just the new species, but any of these reef-building ones? Is there ver variation in their size, or, or how big are they? And what colors are they? What, give us a little description of them. Right. In, in general, oysters do tend to have two forms. the solitary ones, and then there's these more colonial ones. And when you get the colonial ones, they tend to... The, the, the new... Uh, juveniles settle on old shells and so you gradually build up uh, an aggregation um, on the seabed or in the intertidal of um, oyster shells building up um, big big deposits and in fact if they're not farmed some of the commercial oyster species will actually do this uh, so you're, the American Crassostria angulata will build subtidal sea seabed rafts and we used to have quite a lot of these with the common oyster in the UK but they were dredged for food and the dredging destroys the structure 
and now we have no commercial native oysters left here in the UK. So this one in Kuwait is doing the same thing in the intertidal. They are growing together, forming uh, this crust of, of oysters on top of the rocks or on top of mudflats uh, until you get a solid surface. Now, and how big well, they, are they? The, the biggest ones that you get are probably the edible oysters, which are probably 80, 90 millimetres. I mean, what are you talking about? In America, you're still imperial. Uh, yeah, still about four, four or five inches. inches. Or so. The oysters I'm talking yeah. about don't really get much bigger than than 30 millimetres. So that's only an inch and a half or something like that. They're, sure, sure. They, they, so they, they, they've, the bottom valve is cemented to, to the rock or another oyster. Um, and the bottom valve is usually cupped. And, and these oysters that we're talking about today are known as cupped oysters because the lower valve is like a cup. And that's where the edible ones tend to come from because you get a lot of flesh inside them. And then the upper valve tends to be more or less flat. So you've got a cup and a lid. And they are variously sculptured. So the, the bottom valve has flattened um, spines coming round the edge. And those spines are often used to attach, they're cemented onto the substrate. The top valve can be quite variable. It, because they are attached and say the intertidal, of course they're subject to an awful lot of wave action, uh, all sorts of things grow on them, bryozoans, algae. And so they, the top valve tends to be rather difficult to describe because you don't actually see the pure colour. When they're juvenile, you will see the, the original colour and they tend to be a greyish buff with a dark purple uh, black radial bands on them. So they're, they're, oh, that they are very quite pretty, pretty but only, you only see that when they're young. Um, sure, and, sure. So this is similar to in the in the U.S. and, and throughout Europe, of course. You know, it's an invasive species here in the U.S., and I know it is in a, in a lot of Europe. Zebra mussels. Oh, yes, yes. Right. So it, the glue the glue that they're using to stick to each other that you're talking about sticking to rocks and all that that's basically no, bristle thread. No, is that the same mechanism shell being material. used? Material. So they're actually oh, it's secreting shell material. shell material straight onto the substrate. So they're 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 not they're not attached by threads. They're they are cemented. So this is a mantle secretion. Yes, it's the same method as making the shell, except the, the lower oh, okay. valve. So, yeah. When it when it solidifies, it it joins the the lower valve to the substrate. And just so our listeners know, when we they list, get to this part, they're talking. About, when I mention zebra mussels, they actually have a gland that puts off a little glue like string that they could attach themselves with. But these are different. You're saying these are actually. The, the part that actually makes the shell is also m making the glue that's, that's yeah, I wouldn't, the shell I wouldn't itself. It, not, not even a glue. It's, it's the, the shell, shell itself, itself is actually cementing yeah, itself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. So that's, that's how oysters live. Um, and they, they all do that. So there's a, there's, a, there's a group of bivalves which we call cementing bivalves. And there's another group of bivalves which we call bisate bivalves. So the bisate bivalves use threads. So that's like your zebra mussel, like blue mussels. 
then your cementing bivalves are your true oysters. But there are other groups which are not related, but also have evolved to cement the bottom valve. And so you have things called spiny oysters, which are actually related to scallops. Um, oh, okay. And, so you, and there are other things, more obscure things, that have all evolved separately, but have come to develop the same habitat of cementing the lower valve. But oysters are the best one. Oysters are the most prolific at doing this. And you mentioned something a little while ago, because when we talk about reefs, we normally talk about a great deal of diversity, like what we see in a, in a movie or when somebody's diving by a reef or something like that. And you were talking as these things are growing, things are attaching to them, algae, bryozoans, other types of creatures. Do you see a good diversity around these oyster reefs? Yeah, yes, perhaps, perhaps the diversity in the one we're actually talking about in Kuwait is not great, but the conditions in Kuwait are, 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 are different, all right? I mean, if you, if you can imagine a, a beach where the summer temperature is 50 degrees centigrade, then you don't get a lot living on yeah. it. But generally, subtidal oyster beds, they create a three-dimensional structure. And so that attracts um, not just other things sticking themselves to the oysters, but all the spaces between the oysters attract right. polychaete worms, crustaceans, all sorts of things get in amongst there. And the diversity is increased greatly by the oyster bed development. Right. So, And this is fairly warm water then. You, you'd said 50 degrees centigrade, which is about 135 <laughs> to 140 degrees Fahrenheit. And I imagine that water temperature then must be quite warm as well, much warmer than you find in a lot of other places in the in the world where we find these kinds of yeah, I think but if we're going to talk about the Kuwait situation and the, and the oysters in the paper, then you have to understand that the Northern Arabian Gulf is quite an extreme place to live. Sure, so sure. You, you have a, a summer high temperature of 50. You can get a winter low of zero oh. because of various climatic things. The water temperature is probably around about 30 odd. The salinity changes because at the top of the Gulf, you've got the Tigris and Euphrates rivers coming in. And so periodically, you can get a lot of fresh water. But because of the high temperature, periodically, the seawater gets hypersaline. So it's more salty than normal because of all the evaporation that's going on. So you have to kind of imagine quite an extreme environment up there of hot and cold um, fresh and salty, and this is changing throughout the season. Yeah, so that would that that does create a challenging environment for organisms yeah. there. But still, that that the, these are building a reef, where you a, a reef of some sort, right? Where you you're actually still increasing the diversity beyond if they weren't there. Clearly, uh, that's got to have some sort of benefit, I think, to the to the natural ecosystem. Well, it, there. it does two things. It 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 the, it stabilizes the environment. And, and in the northern part of the Gulf, there's a lot of uh, turbidity. Because of the Tigris-Euphrates rivers, they're bringing in a lot of silt and sediment. And it's very shallow, and so you get a lot of reworking by the waves. And so it's very turbid. It's not the sort of ideal scuba diving place to go, because it's all difficult to see. But what the oysters can do here, they, because they're constantly filtering out um, particles in the seawater, um, they can help to clear it up. Because they're structurally fixed, they're creating stability 
in what would otherwise be a rather sandy, muddy, unstable environment. So in, in one of our locations, it's basically a big sand flat, mud flat, with stones on it. But all the stones are covered with oysters and all the rocks are covered. So you're creating, you are creating greater diversity. You've also got all the animals that yeah, eat so, the oysters. Um, so yeah, I was going to say, so you've got like three kind of functions of these. First, of course, is water for clarification because they're filter yeah. feeders. Second is they'll actually help slow down some of the wave action mm -hmm. by by actually creating, you know, real reef-like barrier in there. I imagine if you get large enough agglomerations of these through time. And third, they provide a food resource and a habitat resource. So, so I guess mm -hmm. that would be four things that these are doing. These, these seem to be fairly mm -hmm. pivotal in this environment. How common are they, this, this new species in particular? Well, you'd have to say it's very common because you will get the shore maybe for over a kilometre in length, a mile in length even, which, uh, which part of the shore is just dominated by these oysters. And also in, in, a, in, a, in a place, it's an area between the mainland and an island. And in the Arabian region, all these narrow pieces of water are called Khor, K-H-O-R. So in, in Khor al-Sabiya, you get huge clumps of these oysters. So when you look at them in the distance, there are these black hump shapes, which I suppose in your circumstances might look like bison in the, different, in the distance. <laughs> and in fact, the, 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 the Kuwaitis call these Bogar Bubayan, which the island is Bubayan, and Bogar are cows. So they call these big humps of oysters um, Bubayan cows. So it gives you an idea of you're talking about a, a cow-sized hump <laughs> sticking out of the mud. Um, <laughs> and, and, and so they're, they're very that's common. That's a low tide, you they're would see very, that, right? They are the most dominant intertidal animal in certain parts of the Kuwaiti waters. But this doesn't make sense. How, how in the world can they be the most dominant thing and yet be a new species? Well, what, you would think somebody would have found that ages well, there's, ago. There's, there's two potential answers to that. One, most biologists and taxonomists hate oysters. And that's, that's because <laughs> the shell is very, very variable. Um, I think if you have a look at the paper, you'll see that there are shells which have been worn flat. There are shells with spines. Um, there are completely white shells. There are colored shells. And yeah, they even vary a bit in shape, like just not even just coloration or that, but there were some that were narrower, some that were fatter. I mean, I, yeah, I saw the pictures yeah, in the paper. They're, because I was quite they're growing surprised. together, they, sh they take up the shape of the available space that they've got. So if, if a juvenile settles in a long, narrow space, you'll get a long, narrow shell. If it settles completely unsurrounded by anything, you'll probably get a very beautiful shell with spines on it. Um, but you don't see them too often. So they, that, is, that is one thing. People just make an assumption. So the most common oyster elsewhere in the Arabian region is a thing called Sacostria. And it's a... It doesn't look like this at all, but it's the common one. And what you tend to find is that a lot of people, if they're not specialists in oysters, will say, oh, that'll just be the common oyster. And so they say, right, it's Sacostria. Oh, yeah, that's okay. Now, the other, the other possibility 
is that this oyster is not native to the northern Gulf. Well, and that's interesting because one of the points you make in the paper is that this genus in which it's found, is it Talanostria? Yes. Is that, did I yes. pronounce that correctly? Uh, so Talanostria is normally found in the Far East, right? Over there's several species described around it China. It was originally described from China. And two species were described. So it is, you think, well, this is, this is not what you'd expect. And indeed, it was not what I expected. The, the, the Talanostria in Kuwait, why nobody recognized it, I don't know. Because the common Sacostria, it, has, it tends to be a, a white oyster with black zigzag edge. And it doesn't look anything like the Talanostria. Also, if you open up the Talanostria, the muscle scar is brown. It's, that's not the case in Sacostria. And then oysters have, they're not teeth, but round the edge of the shell, you have little pits on the lower valve and little lumps on the upper valve. And these guys are called comata. Now, Sacostria has big comata. The Talanostria has no comata whatsoever. So as soon as I saw it, I said, well, this is not Sacostria. cannot be Sacostria. But I expected it to be because there is, a, there is evidence that there is, the fauna of the northern Gulf is similar to that in Pakistan and northeast India. And so I thought this will be related to an Indian or Pakistani oyster. But no, it's the Japanese Talanostria. But in the last... Japanese Chinese, or Chinese? Sorry, Ch yes. Chinese, in the Chinese, last yeah. two years, Talanostria has been found in Brazil. And, and they really? reckon, therefore, so it's, is... an, it's an alien invasive. So that's why, you know, we, we thought about this quite a lot. Could the Kuwaiti one be alien invasive? But it's certainly not a species that was known before. So it's certainly a new species. But there is an option, of course, that it could be undescribed in China as well or somewhere else in the, in the, in the Far East. And it's also possible that it's just a widespread genus that we're just now recognizing, right? Yes, right? that's true as well. Because, because, as I said, people don't really like oysters because they're so variable. Sure. Well, you know, just to put this in perspective, last week I talked to somebody who works on rove beetles, and they happen to work on something called aliocarine rove beetles, which are the tiniest of the group, you know, anywhere from a millimeter to maybe a centimeter if you're lucky for the really big ones. And nobody likes them because they're hypervariable. I work on something called linophead spiders, which are the tiny hyper-diverse ones. Nobody likes to work on them because they're small mm -hmm. and hyper-diverse. It sounds like I just stumbled upon a yet another group nobody likes yeah. to work with. Yeah. <laughs> Probably because they're hyper-variable, just mm -hmm. like what you said. Now, when you decided that this was a new species, you did a couple of things. First, there was some morphological stuff you looked at, and you mentioned a little bit of that already. But I want to jump first to some of the molecular data that you looked at, because that's what helped point you to the genus Talanostria, right? Yes, yes. Um, just, just to be clear now, you're going to get me slightly out of my comfort zone because all the molecular well, okay. work was done by our co-author, Daniele Salvi, in Italy. So Daniele's the, the, the king of the, of the molecules, okay? But 
So they. The, well, that's okay because I, I'm talking to an oyster guy and I'm a spider guy, so I'm out of my territory too. We'll all be out of our territory. It'll be fine. So they they <laughs> so we realized um, because of other work that's going on, and because of the morphological variability of oysters, that really we cannot do oyster taxonomy systematics without doing molecular work on them, and so the our. our our other author, Dr. Manal Al-Kandari, she's in charge of the whole project because she, she works for the Kuwait Institute of Scientific Research. And they're basically funding the project. And and so I said to, to Manal, you know, if you want to solve the oysters, we're going to have to do molecular work. Daniele Salvi has done some very interesting work recently, and he agreed to join and help us do this. And so from that, you, you really have to do molecular work. And so we sent him the material and Daniele comes back and says, I've looked at the, the, the molecules, I've looked at the sequences. This is a Talinostria, but it's not a Talinostria that has already been sequenced. And so, so tell me about that moment when you... you heard it was Talanostria instead of anything else that was in the region. Did, did you have this thought of disbelief for a moment? Yeah, I, I'm, because I'm a morphologist, I have lots of disbelief when things don't agree with <laughs> what I'm thinking about. <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, you know, because it, it just, it, it, you thought, well, surely it must be something, because it's so common. If it had been something obscure, then, um, you know, but because this thing is so dominant, you would think that it must be known from somewhere else. Now, have these shells been collected else? I mean, like, obviously, you, you work in a natural history museum, and there are natural history museums throughout the region. Has anybody bothered collecting this? Has anybody gone through some of the collections to see if they're sitting around in there from 100 or 200 years well, ago? Well, the, the, the history of the biological ex, uh, exploration of the Gulf is actually very recent. So... In Kuwait, for example, the first list of mollusca really is 1984. So it, that's relatively recent. Now, the, now the, the lady who wrote that list, she lists this other thing, Sacostria. And as yet, we haven't managed to find any of her collection to see what she was actually looking at. And that's primarily because of this COVID pandemic that all the museums are basically shut. <laughs> so we, we can't get sure, we sure. can't get at this, this material. But that's what we should do just to see because if she records Sacostria from the same place, Coral Sabia, if her specimens are Sacostria, it might lend an argument that something has changed and it may be an invasive species. If she's just made a mistake and what she's calling Sacostria is our Talinostria, then fair enough. That's just she's just made a mistake, that's all it is. Unfortunately she died many years yeah, ago. And so that would lend proof that it's been there for at yeah. least a while. And the, the the difficult thing as well is that there is a book on a, a field guide to the intertidal fauna and flora of Kuwait, written in nineteen eighty six. But that, the oysters in that are just wrong. <laughs> so, 
So you can see that the the name that's used in the in the field guide is an oyster, which doesn't actually even occur in the Gulf at all. So sure. you can see what a mess the whole thing is. And oysters are going to be providing more strange stories. So we collected, over the years, I've been associated with the project with, with Dr. Al-Kandari, which is since 2015. We've been collecting all sorts of things. And so I've been collecting small oysters that live under rocks. So I gave these to Daniele, and he comes by, oh, Graham, this is Austria futamiensis. I said, futamiensis? That's only known from Japan. He says, yes, but the sequences are 100% identical with the Japanese sequences of futamiensis. So here we've got another animal. Let's get a Japanese one. It's in the Gulf. So I think maybe what it's just telling you is it may know very little about oysters, especially non-commercial oysters. Yeah. Commercial oysters... Well, and especially... Okay. Especially in that region, right? In the in the Northern Arabian Sea, because I think that was one of the areas that's been largely ignored. Part of it because of the habitat reasons you were talking about earlier. Everybody thought, well, it can't be that diverse. It's just this, you know, this very hot to very cold, the very salinity, you know, high salinity, mm-hmm. very low salinity area. There's, there just can't be a whole lot there. And it's just part of the world that I think was largely ignored, right? And so it's just not an area that, that unfortunately, Western taxonomists who have been the dominant taxonomists for you know, a few hundred years, just never really paid that much attention to. Yeah. Would you say, would you agree that there's Yes, some and, and, and the, the development of science in the region, I, I, it's difficult. If you, if you try and look at the history of the countries that surround the Gulf, I mean, they, 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 from Kuwait, Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, I mean, the, all the development there, it really only started after they discovered oil. And there was no real development of science or academia at all in these, which were formerly tribal areas. Now, of course, with oil money, you know, Kuwait, Saudi, the Emirates, they've all got the resources that they can now develop their own science, and they are doing that. But basically, they're catching up. And, and very good science, you know, too. Well-funded, very good so science. So that's what's going on. So you, you, yes, you do. So you're, you're basically starting off, I would say, in the 1980s. And, you know, we here in the UK started off in the 1790s or something. So it's, you know. Yeah. So it shouldn't be surprising <laughs> that there's a lot of things that we don't know about the, the Arabian waters. Even though it's so common, that's what's amazing about it is you say this is in some areas the dominant species and uh, you know we we talked about this before we started recording sometimes you have to look in your own backyard because that's the area where people ignore right Uh, everybody wants to go to the far-flung corners of the earth they want to go to the deepest parts of the ocean they want to go to the most pristine jungle and there's value in doing that there's a lot to do there but sometimes we overlook stuff that's right in front of us like there are still new species being described right out of the UK, right where you are. Occasionally, they're not. It's not as common as like the tropics or whatever. But yeah, this is a nice lesson in pay attention to what's right in front of you as well. Don't always have to go looking at the far end. No, of the, the the other thing that to take on board about this is that in certain parts of the world, there's a great reluctance to challenge orthodoxy. 
and you'll get the same in students here. If you get a student using a taxonomic guide to, to something and they can't seem to get an answer, they will push their ideas to get an answer that's in the book. They won't consider that this thing cannot be in the book. Because of their right. their age, their inexperience, they will continue to say, oh, well, it's this. And then they get it wrong, of course, without challenging the fact. So it's not, it's not, just, it's not just looking in your own backyard. It's looking <laughs> in detail. Yeah, just just exactly. look in detail. <laughs> well, the last question I wanted to get to with you, uh, you have a very interesting specific epithet for this. So this is Talonostria mm-hmm. salpinx. And... The, the specific epithet, when you named the species, it has a, a very specific meaning about this particular oyster. Can you tell us what that specific epithet is? Yeah, I, I tend to try and find names for new species that are descriptive of the actual animal itself. And so on this shell, especially when the you're talking about immature shells, young shells, around the edge of the upper valve you have what I call fluted spines. So they are, they, are, they are spines which roll in on themselves, so they look like trumpets. And, but they're not completely fused. Like the bell of the trumpet. If you, if you see what I mean. And so the yeah. name Salpinx is, is, is trumpet. So it's the, it's, the, it's the Talonostria that has trumpets. Uh, so that's, that's why it's called Salpinx. Yeah, that's a fascinating name for it. So I, I have this image in my head of these trumpet bells coming off of a, an oyster. And I got to think if somebody picks that up, they have to think that's very, very distinct. Well, it is. It's, it's a character that's not described for any of the other species of Talonostria. So that's, again, it's also useful to find a character which describes, you know, and makes, makes that name distinctive from the others. I mean, you could, the, 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 the sort of very common thing to do would have been to call it Talonostria Kuwaitensis. But sure. I tell you this, you'll find it outside of Kuwait, and then the name Kuwaitensis becomes misleading. <laughs> so if you, did, if you sure. found it in Vietnam, sure. for example, you'd think, well, you know, what's this thing called Kuwaitensis doing in Vietnam? So I tend to try and stay away from... Uh, geographic um, species names because you'll always get caught out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as soon as you say, well, it's only found here. Oh, well, no, maybe exactly, not. <laughs> exactly. Well, Graham, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been a real treat talking to you and I've, I've learned a lot and uh, hopefully our listeners will learn a lot from you as well. So thank you for coming on and I appreciate no, all of No, it's been a great time. pleasure. Thanks very much. <laughs> Once again, Dr. Graham Oliver's paper is in the June 15 issue of Zookeys. The title of the paper is Molecular and Morphological Systematics of a New, Reforming Cupped Oyster from the Northern Arabian Gulf, Talonostria salpinix New Species. See the episode details for a link to his paper and for a link to his website. Be sure to follow New Species on Twitter, at Podcast Species. And like the podcast on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash New Species Podcast. And if you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast.